Sabbaths, servants, sacrifices, and celebrations. If I say those four topics this morning, those are going to be the topics we look at this morning. So if you want to join me in Deuteronomy chapter 15, we're going to cover all of Deuteronomy chapter 15 and the first 17 verses of chapter 16. And as we look at that rather extensive passage in the book of Deuteronomy, for our guests this morning, we're working through the book of Deuteronomy as a church family, and this morning we come to these chapters. And as we come to these two chapters and we see those four topics, um, I'm a curious person by nature, and I wonder if we could somehow hook up some sort of interest meter on our minds, our hearts. When I say those four words, I wonder where the needle will go when I say the word Sabbath or servant, or sacrifice. Maybe, maybe not too high, but when I say the word celebration, ding, you know, tell, tell me more, Pastor Larry, what's all this about celebration? We're going to look at all four of those topics this morning here in this part of Deuteronomy. And as we do, my prayerful hope um, is that the Spirit will do a work among us, that we will see the importance of all four of those topics and that we will find our lives transformed by His amazing grace. And so we want to begin with the subject of Sabbath. And I'm going to read right now Deuteronomy chapter 15, the first 11 verses. You have a print copy or a Bible app in front of you. Follow along as I read the first 11 verses of chapter 15. The Word of God says through the prophet Moses, And at the end of every seven years you shall grant a release... And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you, as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. So what is this law about here in Deuteronomy chapter 15? 
Well, clearly there's someone who's the lender, right? There's a creditor and there's someone else. This is a family issue. This is a spiritual family issue in Israel, covenant community, the people of God. There's another member of the community who's in need. And the one in need comes to the loaner, the lender, and says, I need this. And so the lender, the creditor, maybe gives some money or some resources or maybe even land. And now the creditor expects payment from that person who borrowed the money or the land or whatever. And God says here in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 15, if you're the lender, you're the creditor, he says that there will be a release after six years. On the seventh year, there'll be a release. Release is a key word in this passage. Literally, in the original language, it has the idea of opening the hand, of releasing the hand. And so God's addressing the person who has, the haves, and he says, you lend to your brother, your fellow Israelite who's in need, and after six years, release the loan. Release it. Let go of it. Open your hand. Why would God tell them to do that? Well, laws for this release of loans during the sabbatical year display God's compassion on the poor. One thing you'll notice throughout the scripture is how people who are destitute, people that are down um, culturally, socioeconomically, economically, people that are down have a special place in God's heart. And he wants his covenant people to reflect his heart toward their brothers and sisters in the Israelite community. He's saying, you treat them the way I treat them, the way I treat you. So what would be the motivation to obey this? So picture yourself for a minute. I think almost all of us here in America would be on the side of those who have. Compared to most of the world, we're the haves. So picture yourself as one of the haves, someone who has enough money that you actually could make a loan to someone. And you hear this law. God speaks to Moses and says, on the seventh year, just let it go. Forgive the loan. What would motivate you to say, okay, yeah, I'll loan you that? <laughs> well, there's several reasons here. Look at verse 7 again, right at the end of verse 7. What's it say at the end? He says, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. And I think it's fascinating in this passage you're going to look at today how there's this connection between the heart and the hand. Our hands do what our hearts feel. It's so tempting to uh, hang on to our stuff, isn't it? We tend to look at people in need and, and uh, we think, well, that's my money. That, that's my money. Why would I lend him? Why would I lend her my money? Why would I lend him my car? Why would I let him borrow that of mine? And, and we look at people in need and we think, hey, I worked hard for that. And what if they abuse it? What if I end up losing and God reminds them in other places, in fact, right here in the book of Deuteronomy, where they got their stuff. Some of you were here, I think it was about six weeks ago, when we were in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And it's fascinating as God's preparing the people to go into the promised land, he says this through Moses, Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he 
who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore with your fathers as it is to this day. So one motivation to be generous when someone asks you for a loan is remember how God has blessed them, how God has blessed you. So the person who's making the loan is supposed to have his heart set on that reality that God's been amazingly gracious to me. God's been very generous to me. I mean, my crops have done well this year. Uh, the farm's going great. The flock's growing. And my neighbor comes to me and says, hey, could I borrow some money? Could I borrow that section of land? And you're supposed to be thinking as an Israelite, sure. I mean, look how God's blessed me. It wasn't, that's not to my credit that I have more than I need. That's God's credit. He has been so gracious to me. And so that's one reason. Uh, one reason is look at how God has blessed me. I want to be thankful to God by being generous. But there's a second reason here in this passage, and I think, and you see that in verse 10. God's saying, if you do this, I will bless you. And so it's a, an attitude not only of being grateful to God, but also for trusting God. God is the supplier of all that we have, and if he blesses me, I know I can trust him. By the way, if you're reading this passage, and you are with me today, pay attention to how many times you see the word bless, that God blesses his people. I think I counted six. There's at least six times in this one passage where God speaks through Moses and he says he will bless his people. And so here in this passage, we see God telling the haves, the, the loaners, the creditors, be generous with people when they ask you for a loan. I've blessed you. I've given you the ability to make money. I've given you more than you need. You have more than you need. You have the ability to make a loan now. And I want you to trust me. That if you'll show compassion on this person in need, I'll make sure you're okay. I will bless you. And so, that's the heart. Now we ask the question, what should be that, that heart that these people have to release the loan? Well, think about this. Think about this very practically, economically, even in our world, in our culture. If you make a loan to a friend... And you know up front that on the seventh year, whatever's left in that loan is going to be released. It's going to be forgiven. And you're looking at the calendar, and what are you thinking? They, that seventh year, that seventh year, that's just a year and a half out. You know, if I make this loan to him 18 months from now, I'm going to have to just let it go. I'm just going to have to release it. I'm going to have to forgive what's ever left on the loan. And if I make this size of a loan and he's only paid back a small portion by the time we get to the Sabbath year, that's going to cost me. It's going to cost me. I'm going to feel some financial pain if I make this loan. And so the temptation would be, and, and Moses acknowledges this here, the temptation would be not to make the loan. Hey, sorry, buddy. <laughs> I'm afraid I can't do it. You know, because the Sabbath year is just 18 months out. And if you don't, you know, accelerate your payments, I'm going to end up losing, and I just don't want to do that. Do you see what 
that attitude is called in this passage, I kind of slowed down and emphasized it with my voice a while ago. What is that called if you refuse to make, if the Israelites refuse to make a loan? What was that called? It was called a, in our language, it's a three-letter word. It's called a sin. <laughs> it's called a sin. In other words, if God's been generous with you as an Israelite, your hurting fellow Israelite comes to you and says, hey, can I borrow some money? My family, we're in dire straits. We can't even buy groceries. And you say, sorry, I can't do it. I, I worked hard for that money. And I don't want to lose financially when that Sabbath year comes. God says through Moses, that attitude is sinful. That is a sin to refuse your brother that alone. Now, we're here today in our culture as New Covenant believers. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. We're under the New Covenant, the covenant of Christ, the law of Christ. And you think, well, that's interesting to study what happened back in Israel, but I'm not an Israelite. What's that have to do with me? Well, let's think of, excuse my big word here, but let's think of the transcovenantal implications. We're not under that covenant, but what is true for God's people of all time? Well, this, as I said, this command is addressed to the haves, the people that have. And knowing that God has a real heart for the people that are the have-nots, the hurting. And let me speak freely here as a fellow, relatively comfortable American. Sometimes if we have comfortable lives and we see someone who is poor, the temptation is to think that their poverty must be because of something they've done wrong. Those people are poor because it's their own fault. And we quickly assume laziness or abuse of, of finances, uh, you know, but we're quick to dismiss them. We think if they want to do better financially, let them do what I did. I work for it. Do you hear that attitude? But hasn't that gone through your mind? I work for it. If they want to be better off, let them work too. And I think it's important for us to remember that not every poor person is poor because of something they've done wrong. We're living in this era between the gardens. We're living in a fallen world. And some people are hard up because of sickness, the death of the income earner, some sort of accident or natural disaster, abandonment. There are plenty of people in our community that are going through difficult times through no fault of their own. And it would be good for us to humble ourselves and acknowledge that and to realize God has been gracious to me, an ill-deserving sinner. Why would I clench my hand around my stuff? Why would I be tight-fisted with my money, my money to hire? Whenever I stop and realize God's been gracious to me spiritually, first of all, He's even been gracious to me materially, that He's given me enough to live on and even some more. And then I open my hand. I open my hand. God will take care of us if we're generous. He'll enable us, I believe, to continue to be generous. And I think of what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9, and let me read this with you and then 
briefly explain it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul wrote this, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now this passage is a favorite with prosperity preachers. And those of you that know me know that that's not my bent. <laughs> but what's Paul saying here? What's the Holy Spirit saying through the Apostle Paul? Think about it this way. Back then, when he wrote this, if someone were sowing grain, he would have a bag of, of seeds, maybe wheat or barley. And he would dip his hand into his bag, and as he went through the field, he would sow that seed. And Paul uses that analogy in regard to generosity. And he said, if you as a Christian, if you as a follower of Jesus Christ will be generous with your stuff, with your money, and you're sowing it, he'll make sure your seed bag always has enough to continue to be generous. He's not saying, if you give me the preacher $100, God will give you 1000 <laughs> That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying, if you have this God-reflecting, Christ-honoring life of generosity, that's who you are. You, you understand how generous he's been to you and and you're generous. If you have a little, you have a lot. You're generous with what you have. God will make sure you can continue to be generous. He'll make sure you always have enough to be generous in some way. I grew up in a family that by American standards was poor. My parents understood this. They were simple people living in a coal mining village. But I grew up with parents who modeled this for me. Some of you have heard me quote my dad. He said, my mom's name was Connie. And he said, Connie, put another can of water in the soup. We're having company. <laughs> A little, but we'll share it. And God always made sure we had enough soup or venison or whatever that we could share with people in need. So whether you have a little or you have a lot, if we are generous, God says he'll bless us. He'll make sure we can continue to be generous, even in this new covenant era. And one more hesitation we might have. Let me address very quickly. I know I'm with you on this. It's so tempting that when people ask us for money or ask us for a loan or ask to borrow something, it's so tempting to think, well, what if they just take advantage of me? What if they're just taking advantage of me? You know what? That's a real possibility. That's a real possibility. But do you, do you see what Moses says here? The, God says through Moses here? He says by being tight-fisted instead of open-handed, that's a sin. And so if you're wrestling with what if someone sins against me, wouldn't it be better to be sinned against than to sin? Wouldn't it? Better to be sinned against than to sin. So risk. Be generous. <laughs> That's Sabbath, the Sabbath year, forgiving the loan. Let's talk about servants, verses 12 through 18. I'm in Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 18. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, or another translation would be sells himself to you, 
He shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, then you shall take an owl and put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you for at half the cost of a hired worker he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Now let me begin by saying, we need to understand what's happening here. When we hear the word slave in our culture, our minds tend to go to some of the darkest pages in our country's history of when black people were enslaved primarily by white people. Sometimes it was Native Americans who were enslaved. But we think back to those very dark pages of our history here in America and we think that's what's going on here. No, there, there were what we would call chattel slaves. There were those who were owned in entirety by another human being back then. And it was ugly then, even it was ugly in our history. But as you read like the book of Joshua, sometimes you'll see prisoners of war who weren't killed, but instead their life were spared, but now they were enslaved to chop wood and carry water, for instance. But that's not the picture here. What we're picturing here is an Israelite who's not only out of money, but he's really out of money. He's, he's drained. And so he owes money to a brother Israelite, and he goes and says, I can't pay you, but could I pay this off by making a contract with you for the next six years? And it was a contractual servitude. And those of you that have the ESV, if you look at your footnote there, it says footnote number two, I think it is, or sells himself. I personally think that reflexive is probably a better translation here. That if he sells himself. So here's an Israelite who's really hard-pressed. And the only way he and his family can live is if he indentures himself, if he contracts himself to work below minimum wage, to wear off this debt. And now he's under obligation to this creditor, not just to pay a loan, but to actually do what he says to work for him for the next six years. So, in this passage, you see this debt slave trying to work off his debt. But what happens on the seventh year? There's a release again. There's that word. There's a release. There's an open-handedness. Now, this doesn't necessarily coincide with the Sabbath. This doesn't coincide chronologically necessarily with the Sabbath we just read about because this guy's uh, obligations to his master would begin on his first day of work. But at the end of those six years, when he gets to the seventh year, it was like a personal Sabbath, okay? It was like his personal Sabbath. So he gets to that seventh year, and his owner says, hey, it's the seventh year. You can go free. And he was released. The, the master, um, the guy that he was paying off his debt to, was supposed to just let go 
of whatever was remaining. He was to open-handedly. That's not the end of the story, is it? What did God tell Moses to tell the people? How was that, in, we'll call him an indentured servant. How did that indentured servant, how was he to get sent off? Lavishly. The word of God says that these Israelites, who were the lenders, who were the creditors, who were the masters, were to show real love and dignity to this servant. It's the language of dignity here. And he says, send him off lavishly. Honor him. Give him stuff to get his farm started. Give him enough that he can live on for a while. And it's like, give him a new start in life. Moses, tell the people, give this man and his family, or sometimes it was a lady, give this person a new start in life. Send them off with their hands full. Be generous. Be open-handed with this former servant of yours. Now, why would they do that? If you were the master in that situation, why would you say, sure, glad to do that? Well, again, notice this pattern. They were to recall God's grace to them, and at least their family lineage. That he says, remember that you, your family, our ancestors, were slaves in Egypt. That they weren't to look at this person who was indentured as somehow a second-class citizen, not as good as me. They were to look at them with dignity, remembering their own history of enslavement in Egypt. So they remember where they came from. Remember where he came from. But you have a background, not just an indentured servant. You were actually an enslaved person, chattel slaves. They were to remember this person as a fellow Israelite. This is my brother. This is my sister. And there was to be love and conferring of honor and dignity. This situation, if it went right, this indenturement, if it went right, it's possible that that servant would say, you know what, boss, I know it's the seventh year, but I really like working for you. <laughs> that if the master in that situation were truly reflecting God's heart, the servant might say, this is a really nice situation. Do I have to leave? I would love to continue to work for you. A love for the man or the woman and the family a recognition that life is actually pretty good here. And if the servant said, I, I would love to just stay with you permanently, then there would be a piercing of the ear. And that person, in a sense, would be kind of absorbed into the family and live with that family, live out his years with that family, continuing to serve. You know, I think I, I left out one reason why the master should be glad to send this person off lavishly. Did you catch that in verse 18? For at half the cost of a hired worker, he has served you for six years. <laughs> Whatever the contract was, it was below minimum wage. <laughs> and the, the master was supposed to be thinking, you know what, you've been so kind and working for me at below what I would have to pay a hired worker. I'm glad to send you off lavishly. Now, let me ask that question again, this open-handed question. Um, why would we as New Covenant believers listen to this Mosaic law and think, well, that relates to my life? Well, let's think about that for a minute. 
You know, some, and even in our church, are employers. You have people in your employ. Or maybe your boss in your place of employment. You have people who work for you. Or even if that's not your situation, maybe you hire people temporarily, maybe to do contract work, you know, hire a contractor, you know, hire someone to work on your car. You know, we have someone who work, people that work for us temporarily. Or maybe even we should think about the servers in a restaurant. They're working for us for that hour or so we're in the restaurant. How do we treat those people? Do we treat them the way God's treated us? That God's been lavishly good to me. He's been kind to me. He's shown, he's given me his son. And along with him, he's freely given us all that we need. And that I cannot bicker and dicker with that contractor. I don't have to underpay my employees. I don't need to be stingy with my tip at the restaurant. That we as recipients of God's amazing grace, generous grace, we should be the most gracious, generous people walking this planet. That we are so overwhelmed to look at how kind he's been to me. Look at how he has poured out super abundantly his grace to me, spiritually and often materially. And that we respond with open-handedness, that we're open-handed, not tight-fisted. Christians should never be characterized as tight-fisted, that we live open-handedly. Freely you've been given. Freely give. Now let's move on to sacrifices, and we're going to pick up the pace here. Some of you are getting nervous thinking about lunch. Chapter 15, verse 19 through 23, sacrifices. We've looked now at what? Sabbath, servants, and now sacrifices. Deuteronomy 15, starting at verse 19. All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God, year by year, at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your towns. The unclean person and the clean alike may eat it as though it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. Okay, what, what's this about? Well, the Israelites, most of them were agrarian. Most of them had flocks of sheep goats or maybe herds of cattle. And whenever there was a firstborn lamb, firstborn goat, kid, uh, firstborn calf, if it was a male and it was pristine, it was perfect, they were to offer that to the Lord. By the way, if it was blemished, they weren't to offer it to the Lord. Let me just make a quick note here. You know, sometimes as human beings, if, you know, <laughs> Think of it as a, uh, someone had a herd of sheep, for instance. If, if he had a really good lamb born, you think, that would be uh, nice to keep that. Uh, son, why don't you go out around the flock there and see if you can find one that's not quite so nice. We'll offer that as a sacrifice. Do you know what we're doing there? We're giving God our leftovers. 
I think I'll just give God my leftover. And you think, well, I don't, I'm no shepherd. I don't have a flock of sheep. Well, how often do we handle our personal finances that way? You know, let me get my bills paid. Let me do what we want to do in life uh, this week, this month, and then we'll see what we have left over to give to the Lord's work. And we're doing that thing of offering leftovers. But God says to the Israelites, give your firstborn sheep, your firstborn uh, calf. You give your firstborn the best you can. Why was that? Why did he say to do that? Well, one obvious reason is that the firstborn, in a sense, represented the whole flock. The giving the firstborn was a way of acknowledging God owns all that I have. He owns all my flock. He owns all my herd. I'm giving the firstborn as an acknowledgement that God owns it all. But there's another reason, and you need to remember your Bible history there for it to get some traction in your heart. Do you remember when God killed firstborns sometime before this? In Egypt, that night that the Israelites left Egypt, God rescued them out of Egypt that night. God told Pharaoh through Moses, a much younger Moses, um, Pharaoh, let my people go. If you don't let my people go, my son, Israel, collective son, if you don't let my son go, I'm going to take your son I'm going to take your firstborn son. I'm going to take the firstborn of all your flocks, all your herds, Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And what did God do? He took all the firstborns. But he told the Israelites, if you put that blood on your doorpost, on your lentil, I will pass over your house. And I will not take your firstborns. And now, a generation later, God's telling Moses to tell the people, Dedicate your firstborns to the Lord. Remember where you came from. Remember God's grace to you. Next, we come to celebrations. Some of you have been waiting for the celebrations. And here, in chapter 16, the first 17 verses, we see Moses describing three different festivals, three different feasts, and if you're familiar with your uh, opening books of the Bible, you think, well, wait a minute, Moses, haven't you already talked extensively about all these? I mean, I can remember reading about these, these festivals, these feasts, these celebrations in Exodus. We, we heard about them in Leviticus. We heard about them in Numbers. And now you're telling us again, Moses? Yes. Well, for one thing, it's another generation. But there's another reason. Because now these three festivals, these three celebrations are going to be thought of differently. You see, in the wilderness, the people camped together, right? All 12 tribes gathered around the central tabernacle, and they lived life together for 40 years. But now they're about to go into the promised land. And as they go into the promised land, what's going to happen to the covenant people of God? They're going to get spread out. They're going to spread out all over the place. In fact, some are even going to be on the east side of the river. So they're going to be all spread out. So how are they going to keep community? How are they going to keep their oneness in mind? Well, God picks three festivals out of, what, seven? He picks three festivals and he says, these three, I'm going to require all the males, all the men, to gather in the place I appoint. Every year, 
Now, the women and children are welcome to come, but I'm going to require the men to come. I want the heads of the household especially to show up three times a year at the place I designate. And that place of designation would be where the tabernacle would be, and later, the temple in Jerusalem. He wants these people to remember that they're not just individuals. They are the covenant people of God. They're a community of God's people. Even as we in the New Covenant, the church is the community of Christ. We're not just individual Christians. We're the church. So let's take each of these briefly. How about the first celebration? The Passover. I'm in chapter 16 now, and we're going to read the first eight verses. Observe the month of Abib. And keep the Passover to the Lord your God, for in the month of Abib the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, <clears throat> nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not eat the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening, at sunset, at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning, you shall turn and go to your own tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. And here in this part of Deuteronomy 16, it's... It's as if God takes two festivals and he welds them together, the Passover and unleavened bread. The Passover meal was the, the Passover was like the beginning of their calendar. We begin on January 1st. Uh, they began actually in the spring. Their calendar started in the spring, what we would consider late March, early April, um, because that's when the Passover was. So every year on that first day of the year, they were to have an anniversary celebration of the original Passover. And then that would be immediately followed by seven days of eating unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is just bread. It's like pita bread, bread that has no yeast in it. Now, now why would God say, I want you to eat that for seven days? Why bread with no yeast for seven days? Well, it was to remind the Israelites of their past. Uh, it was a bread of affliction. It reminded them of life as slaves in Egypt. And on the night of the Passover, God says, be ready to go. Be ready to go. Don't take time to say, well, the bread's still rising. <laughs> Don't wait for the bread to rise. Don't make bread with yeast. For on this occasion, I want you to eat unleavened bread. And so that necessity to eat unleavened bread on the night of the Passover became a requirement of God every year that the Israelites were to go a whole week with not eating bread that rises, to just eat unleavened bread. So that they would remember, every time they ate that pita bread, they were to remember, we were slaves in Egypt and God rescued us. God brought us out in a hurry. He brought us out of Egypt in a hurry. 
And every time we eat this bread, we remember God's history of treating us as a people with his amazing grace, that he rescued us out of slavery. And the Passover, the Passover, the killing of that sheep and the eating of it uh, at night was a reminder how God spared them from the angel of death that came and killed all the Egyptian family firstborns. Now, here we are today as new covenant people. I keep reminding us that we're under a different covenant. And you say, well, what's that have to do with us? Well, I think sometimes we forget our own history that what we sometimes refer to as the Passion Week. You familiar with that term, Passion Week? That's the week that celebrates, starts with the triumphal entry on Sunday, Friday, Good Friday, Sunday, Resurrection Day. Do you know when that is every year? It's the same week every year. I mean, not calendar-wise, but before the lunar calendar goes. It's the same time as Passover. Jesus died at Passover. That's not an accident. Jesus died at Passover. Do you remember at the early days of Jesus' ministry when John the Baptist saw him down by the river? John pointed to him and he, he said something that is significant. He said, behold, some of you know this, behold, the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I mean, all those thousands, hundreds of thousands of lambs that died at the Passover over the centuries could not ultimately take away sins. But when John saw Jesus, he knew he was. He said, hey guys, look at him. Now there's the Lamb provided by God. God's providing the Paschal Lamb. God's providing the Passover Lamb. He's the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus died at Passover. And it's good for us when we get to that point in our calendar to remember how gracious God's been to us. How He's been so open-handed with us and not withheld His Son. And even, friends, when we celebrate communion, why do we do that? Does it seem like an empty ritual to you? It can. It can wrongly become mere habit or mere ritual to us. But when we celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that should be a, an ongoing reminder to us of what God did to save us. He gave His Son. It's good to remember and then the second celebration that's mentioned here is called the celebration of weeks. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of First Fruits. Let me read verses 9 through 12. You shall count seven weeks, begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle was first put in the standing grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God from the tribute of a free will, with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, who is within your towns, <coughs> the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. And so seven weeks after the first harvest of the grain, when the sickle was first put in to cut down the grain. Uh, actually, it would be seven weeks from the 
unleavened bread celebration, seven weeks from then, uh, you were to have another festival. Uh, this would be called, as I mentioned, uh, by different names, Feast of Harvest, Feast of First Fruits. Some of you have heard the name Pentecost. That's this. That's this celebration, Pentecost. Pentecost means 50th, so seven weeks, 49 days, 50th day. Okay, making sense, right? So you hear different names for this feast. It's interesting, in this case, this particular festival, how open-handed the people were told to be. They were to be open-handed toward God. And so it says, bring a free will offering. Um, you know, I'm not going to tell you the amount. I'm not going to require a certain amount. I want you, from your own will, your own decision, to say, I want to bring this much. And they were to be generous. They were to be open-handed as they brought... Uh, their offering to the Lord. So they were to be, in a sense, open-handed toward God. But I find it fascinating, as God tells Moses what to say here, how there is this understanding that this celebration wasn't just with the haves, but it included people who maybe couldn't bring much to contribute to the celebration. Remember now, this is a gathered celebration. You're not doing this in your home spread out over the land. This is one of those pilgrimage festivals where the men, and sometimes the whole families, would come to later Jerusalem, the place where the tabernacle or temple was. And you'd bring, you would bring your sacrifice. You would bring your offering to the Lord. And the poor people might not have much to bring. So are they going to be out there on the fringe? You know, people have the big offerings. They're front and center. Everyone's noticing and honoring them. And the poor people, the Levites who didn't have farms, they were landless. The widows, the destitute, are they considered second-class citizens of this celebration? Not at all. They're included in the family. They're included in the family. And the whole family celebrating together God's kindness, God's grace to us as his people. And as New Covenant believers, I think of this whole mindset that as a people of God, we don't have classes in the church, do we? We don't have, I mean, we have Sunday school classes, but I mean, we don't have classes of people. Like, this is a first class member of our church. They're, they're some of the big givers. And this is a second class member of our church. They hardly ever put anything in the offering. We don't treat each other that way. That we're all brothers and sisters in Christ and we treat each other equally with love and dignity. We're reflecting God's heart in this. We're reflecting his heart. That the less honorable is treated is more honorable among us. That there's, there's this desire to reflect the heart of God very practically and how we live as the church. And there's a little sentence in Romans 12 that could easily be passed over, but maybe we ought to park there for a while. In Romans 12, 16, Paul says, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Who do you want to sit with in church, you know? I want to sit with my friends. I want to sit with the important people. <laughs> or do you uh, maybe sit with someone that is new or someone that feels like, I don't know if I should be here, and they're sitting off in the corner somewhere. Hey, can I sit with you? You know, that we associate with the lowly. One more celebration. It's called the celebration of booths, or sometimes tabernacles. Um, that's 13 through 15 of chapter 16. 16, 13. You shall keep the feast of booths seven days, and when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press, you shall rejoice. There it is again. You shall rejoice in your feast. 
you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. So here's this third pilgrimage festival, the third celebration in which the men are required and everyone's welcome to come to one central location, the place where God designates, the place where God makes his presence known, where the tabernacle or temple was. And it's like the family gathered at the father's house. It's like eating before the Lord. It's like eating before our heavenly father, that we're his family and we're all gathered together here in his presence. Like the previous festival, this one was a harvest festival, only instead of the first grains, this one happened at the end of the agricultural year. So fruits and, and grain and things that ripen later, things like olives, um, other produce, especially trees that produce later in the year, like we have we go pick apples, what, September, you know, toward the end of the year. It'd be similar in their culture where there are certain things that became ripe toward the end of the season. So this would kind of end the agricultural year. They had another party. They had another celebration. And they'd gather in the central place and enjoy and rejoice in God's kindness. And again, it was for everybody. Didn't matter how much you could bring or how little you could bring. We're all his people and we're here to celebrate with great joy. And then this long passage ends in verses 16 and 17 with kind of a summary statement. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. So we looked at Sabbaths, Servants, sacrifices, and celebrations. You say, what do all those have in common? I think they all have this. That God's people live with a grateful open-handedness. Whether I'm forgiving a loan, releasing someone under contract to me, bringing my sacrifices to the Lord, celebrating with my spiritual family, including the poorest among us, that we live open-handedly. God has been astonishingly open-handed with us. Just like he rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, if we're part of his new covenant, we're part of the people of Christ. He's rescued us out of our slavery to sin, to self, and to Satan. And we are to live acknowledging our past, God's grace to us. And that is to move us to live differently than the world around us. That the people of God should be countercultural. That we live with this astonished gratitude for God and His grace. Look at how generous He's been with us. He's poured out His grace. And that we are so overwhelmed with His kindness, His generosity, His open-handedness with us, that we live open-handedly. Christians are never tight-fisted. We're open-handed before God and before brothers and sisters in need. As I was reflecting on this passage personally, it struck me 
And I need to pray for three things. You can join me in this if you'd like. Lord, open my eyes. Lord, open my eyes. Help me to see. Help me to see how good you've been to me. Help me to see the needs of people around me. The second prayer, Lord, open my heart. Let me be moved. Let me be moved with compassion that reflects the compassion of my Savior. And open my hand. Open my hand. That I'd be generous with the people around me that are in need, especially my brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those of the household of faith. Would you like to join me in that? Open my eyes. Open my heart. Open my hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your astonishing grace to the Israelites, even though many of them were in that covenant without new hearts. You were so patient. And now, Lord, here we are as new covenant people. You've written the law not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of our hearts. And yet, Lord, sometimes we test your patience too. Thank you for treating us with grace. And Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for our church family here, Lord, that you would open our eyes. That we might not be so self-absorbed that we're missing reminders of your grace to us, that we're missing the needs of our brothers and sisters around us. Open our hearts. That we might never be hard-hearted, but that we would have hearts acknowledging your grace through compassion. And Lord, open our hands that this would not somehow remain in the realm of theory, but that we would actually live with a generosity that reflects you and your kindness to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.